America's incredible prosperity was built atop a foundation of free markets and free people. We cannot allow left-wing ideologues to undermine that foundation. But with inflation on the rise and a struggling market, many in America's political class are attempting to recycle their failed socialist ideas. National Review's Capital Record podcast is standing in the gap, providing you with the arguments and analysis you need to defend our economic system. Financier and NRI trustee David Barnson hosts interviews with the nation's top business leaders, entrepreneurs, and financial commentators as they provide a practical and moral vindication of America's capitalist way of life. With guests such as Larry Kudlow, Steve Forbes, and Art Laffer, Capital Record invites you to tune in for top-level economic commentary you can't get anywhere else. Join the conversation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Chris Christie, in. Mike Pence, in. That guy who's governor of North Dakota, in. Plus, does anyone know what woke even means? We'll discuss all this more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined, as always, by the Abigail Anthony, Noah Rothman, and the sage of authenticity, Woods, Jim Garrity. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Ball and Branch Sheets and Made In. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Jim, let's start, if you don't mind, with what's not happening. Because I I think uh, we often ignore the people who make really wise and public-spirited choices about whether they're going to run for president or not. And in this category, emphatically falls Chris Sununu of New Hampshire. There was no way he was going to win the nomination. He's pro-choice or effectively pro-choice and has a, a, a moderate demeanor, if nothing else, and is out of sympathy with the, the Trumpish turn of the Republican Party. All he could do was get 5, 10, 15, 20 percent of the vote in New Hampshire and make it harder uh, for a non-Trump, some other non-Trump alternative to actually take down Trump. And he recognized this and not just recognized it, acted on it by saying he's not going to run. Yes, this was one of the pleasant surprises of this cycle. And I say this as a guy who generally thinks well of uh, Governor Sununu and who appeared on one of the other podcasts that I do. Um, When Sununu was thinking about this, I'd written something saying, look, it's not going to be you. Um, There's just not a viable path. Oh, by the way, if Sununu had jumped in, let's say Sununu had somehow caught fire. Uh, maybe this would have required every other candidate in the race to literally catch fire and be incapacitated. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's say for whatever reason, you know, Sununu does a lot better. If he wins... Yeah. Yeah, Sununu would have to like not, not make the debate stage and then there's some terrible bingo. collapse yes. in the you know, uh, debate uh, forum. When they talk about the candidates having a lack of support, the stage had a lack of support. And that's what the <laughs> uh, insert joke about Christie being on stage here. Um, the thing that would be that, you know, let's say Chris Sununu won the New Hampshire primary. Well, you're governor of the state. You're supposed to. Uh, back in 92, Tom Harkin, the senator from Iowa, uh, chose to participate, chose to run. People forget about this. 
Uh, but everybody kind of skipped the caucuses because of that. So in a very strange way, there's been this huge fight about whether New Hampshire was still going to get to go uh, first. It is not going to go. F- okay, it is the D- Democratic National Committee voted for it not to go first. Sununu jumping in, and if he had somehow you know started climbing in the polls, would have made the New Hampshire Republican primary much less relevant and interesting. Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. even if he managed to do well, it wasn't going to be good for his state and wouldn't do as much because if you win your home state, well, you're supposed to win your home state. Um, so I, that, you know, I do put Sununu kind of in the same category of checks notes, Doug Burgum, the governor of North Dakota. Look, the Republican party has a lot of good, fairly popular Republican governors in states that are not terribly, you know, uh, you know, extensively covered or well-known and somebody like in a normal set of circumstances, somebody like that probably deserves a good look. It's possible that there may be a great potential president in some state capital that doesn't get nearly as much attention as, you know, the, you know, Acela Corridor or the West Coast or Florida or something like that. But with that said, this is not a, this is absolutely not a normal circumstance. Uh, as so far, it still looks like a two, two-man race for the Republican presidential primary. And some people would argue that's even stretching it. Um, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, a whole bunch of Mike Pence, a whole bunch of folks who are Brings strong resumes and in some cases, you know, genuine charisma to the race are right now still floundering at the bottom. Now, that could they turn it around? Sure. But it's it's June now. It's not January anymore. It's not, you know, theoretical or hypothetical. Most of these folks have made their debuts, some well, like Nikki Haley, some not so well, like DeSantis. And the dynamic of the race remains. Trump is the favorite. Uh, DeSantis is the challenger who's got the best shot at it. And after that, it's a long gap. So... Uh, I salute Chris Inunu for that decision. I don't know what Doug Burgum is thinking, and I think uh, we're in this genuine danger of the Republicans essentially, you know, putting together a rerun of 2016. Yeah. So Noah, uh, th- this is a natural segue to Chris Christie, who has, has, is not making the same choice that Chris Inunu is. I like Chris Christie. I admire him. I think he's he's really smart. Did a lot of good stuff in New Jersey. Not the easiest environment. He's uh, fun and, and insightful and, and smart, but it's it's hard to see how this is, is going to work out for him. It didn't work out for him when he was, you know, his his governorship was, I mean, he was still governor, right? When, when he ran in, in 2016, that feels like a long time ago. It's hard to see how he's going to get above 1%. And one of the rationales for his candidacy now, he's, he's basically saying he's in it to win it. But the initial rationale a while ago is that he's going to go after Trump. And this has been eroded by DeSantis actually going after Trump, not in full-throated terms. Christie has been much more, um, you know, unsparing in his criticism of Trump, not tiptoeing around various mega sensitivities the way DeSantis feels like he needs to. But this this is not, it's not a field anymore where no one's saying anything negative about Trump. And then Christie needs to get actually on a debate stage if he's going to take the fight to Trump. That's in doubt, you know, you need 40,000 donors, which is not easy to get, and above 1% in the polls. Donors, you can buy them, but uh, it's it's expensive, so that's in doubt. E- even if Christie gets on the debate stage, it's not clear Trump is going to be there in the debate stage because he's talking about skipping the initial debates. And even if they're both on the debate stage together, it may be that Christie's standing in the party is is so low that anything he says is discounted and helps Trump and and 
brings discredit to the arguments he's making about 2020 and other things. So it's hard to see how this makes sense. I got to tell you, I hadn't even considered the prospect of Trump skipping the debates, but Christie making the threshold, at which point he trains all his fire on just about everybody, including most especially the most viable anti-Trump candidate in the race, Ron DeSantis, who he seems to have uh, a grudge against. Um, Yeah, you articulated a pretty comprehensive case against Christie's path to the nomination. I suppose a corollary to getting up in the morning and thinking you're the most capable person to lead the most powerful country on the planet is thinking that you are the only person who's capable of taking out somebody like Donald Trump and then resting on the laurels that you acquired in a debate mm-hmm. against Marco Rubio, uh, right. who really played into that attack. It's not as though this was a masterful bit of rhetoric from from Chris Christie's right. side. He he just managed to say say a line of attack, and then and then Marco Rubio stumbled into it. It was it was Rubio making a mistake, not mm-hmm. Christie's deft maneuvering that undermined Rubio's candidacy, which yeah. would, by the way, have imploded if his if his strength was was stronger and he wasn't just simply an avatar of discontent against Donald Trump. Yeah. And, and these debates also, you know, where you get five minutes, seven minutes max, and you're being asked all sorts of different kinds of questions, but you don't know which way it's going to bounce and maybe have one opportunity to take it to Trump and, and you you flub it or he escapes for whatever reason he's good at escaping. So it's just banking on the debates and taking down Trump. It's just, that's, it's a bank shot upon a bank shot. And and we risk really overestimating debates. Now they, they matter. They certainly matter, especially the very early ones where they're introductory. Um, but I don't know if we have a, a broad history of demonstrating that the debates really are determinative when it comes to the primary process, especially when you have a front runner that's in the lead like this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's really events in the field, missteps by the candidate, deft maneuvering by his opponents, uh, fleet-footed uh, shifting of messaging in order to capitalize on news cycles. That's the sort of thing that kind of moves the needle. A good debate performance can move the needle for a while, and I think there's somebody like Vivek uh, Ramaswamy, for example, who could turn in a really good performance and have a, a Newt-style, Herman Cain-style, Ben Carson-style bump, but as those bumps, as the history of those bumps demonstrate, it is a short-lived phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So, Abigail, I want to get you in on Christie, but first of all, who is Abigail Anthony? You're, you're a recent graduate of Princeton, and I mean recent, right? Like last week? A week ago. Yeah. <laughs> a week ago. Congratulations. Thank you. You were uh, an intern last year. You've been writing for us on and off since doing fantastic stuff, and we'll have to have our in-house statistician check this out, but I believe you are the youngest person ever to appear on this podcast. I was not appearing on the editor's talls in my 40s, Abigail. So this is this is really impressive. But every older listener is going to be rating your performance and, and using it to judge what they think of the younger generation. So no pressure. It's all on you. It's all on you this episode. But what, what do you think uh, of Christy? Are we underestimating him? I think it's difficult to know how Christie will impact the race, but he will certainly have some impact. And I realize that isn't a super insightful point. It's rather obvious that Christie's announcement wasn't met with the same excitement as DeSantis' launch, who accumulated millions in just a few days. I think a lot rests on whether Christie will go after Trump or go after DeSantis. Christie was one of Trump's earliest endorsers, but later backwalked that, so it'll be interesting to see which strategy he picks. I think Christie and Trump 
assuming they do get on the debate stage, will pose a threat to DeSantis because they have such aggressive personalities, which mm-hmm. could really overpower DeSantis's temperance. I think that Trump, Christie, and DeSantis are all unapproachable in their own ways, but DeSantis is the only one who is introverted and really awkward. Politico even published an article, I think a week or two ago, suggesting that DeSantis has stereotypical autism traits. So I think DeSantis' awkwardness will be particularly noticeable when he's beside Trump and Christie, who are somewhat sociable and relatively funny. So the personality differences rather than the political differences pose a hurdle. So, Jim, it has been notable that DeSantis hasn't done hostile interviews. He'll do press gaggles. He, I think he's done uh, at least two by my count since he's he's gotten in. And, you know, reporters are out there mingling with him with, with voters after these events. So it's not as though he's t- totally shielded or cocooned, but he, he has not done what Tim Scott did, we're recording Tuesday, yesterday, which is go on The View, you know, sit there with four or five hostile panelists and, and duke it out. And the, the great advantage to doing this is, yeah, it could bounce the wrong way on you, but if you just stand your ground and if you perform well the way Tim Scott did, it shows strength, shows a lack of brittleness, and it gets spread around all over the place. None of us watch The View, I assume. I don't want to speak for you, Abigail, yet. I don't, I don't know you well enough. I assume you're not watching The View. <laughs> but you see, watch anything else. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But you, you know, see the clips spread around, and everyone's been talking about this Tim Scott performance. Yeah. Look, I think uh, it was our colleague Jeff Blahar who said that uh, just moments like that make it very easy to justify Tim Scott being in this race, even if he's you know, down in single digits. You know, no. First of all, he demonstrates a certain amount of you know, um, a certain amount of you know, ideological courage going into the lion's den, so to speak. And then when you can go in and just you know slam Sonny Hostin and Joy Behar and the rest to their faces, and call them out for um, just everything that they're wrong about, you know, you go viral. You get a lot of attention from people who have you know kind of either tuned you out or aren't paying nearly as much attention as you'd like to your campaign. And it works. And I think it would be wise for DeSantis. DeSantis may not necessarily have to do The View, um, but I think it would be good for him to do a couple interviews that could get a little choppy. Um, I think it's good – uh, as much as, you know, I have no objection to him when he kind of, you know, sh- you know, shuts down a reporter or brusquely dismisses them or something like that. But I think it's, you know, it's just general. It's good for presidential candidates to do interviews. Yes, there's always a risk you'll get asked, you know, who's the prime minister of Pakistan or something like that. And you have a George W. Bush moment. Very rarely do these things actually torpedo mm-hmm. a campaign that was otherwise doing yep. fine. And Trump in the triad. It's good for public accountability. It's good for, you know, like this is part of the process of running for president. And if you can't handle an interviewer who doesn't already like you, you probably are going to you know, like the, jo- the, the job is going to be tougher than that. Um, and so I, I think it, w- it wouldn't hurt to see DeSantis doing some interviews. It doesn't have to be um, – I'm trying to think of the most – you know, a Keith Olbermann. You know, it doesn't have to be the most – you know. R- mm-hmm. although, by the way, if he did, boy, would that probably make for very entertaining mm-hmm. uh, dynamics. Sometimes it's good to go into the, you know, the lion's den and, and – you know. just, just, just for that – in that instance, Keith Olbermann would need a show, which he's lost every single show. So he'd have to – some network would have to give him a show first, Jim. I don't know if the Twitter – I don't know I don't know if the Twitter – his Twitter account has been shut down, but I do think he's just out on his apartment balcony yelling out at people. <laughs> so, no, obviously what Abigail said about DeSantis is correct. You know, he's, he's a introvert, not, not a, a natu- natural uh, backslapper. But the, the level of focus on this, I think, has been – 
way over the top where every single interaction now at, on the rope line is like, did, did the governor shake that person's hand for long enough? You know, did he look that person in the eye? Did he say, just say hi when he should have said, you know, so, some other chit chatty things? Uh, just incredibly uh, hostile coverage. And the best example of this last couple of days is it's just this amazing parodic piece in the Daily Beast about this motorcycle jacket that DeSantis's wife, Casey, wore at this Joni Ernst uh, a motorcycle event out in Iowa that said, you know, Florida's where, where woke goes to die. And this was made out to, as a, a literally murderous sentiment, like woke people are going to be sent to camps and exterminated in Florida and to just how callous and evil the DeSantis couple is and, and also how much less fashionable. That's almost as bad, Noah, <laughs> less fashionable than they are, they are than Democrats. I, I read this piece. It's probably the first piece of fashion reporting I think I've ever read. Well, I'm not sure. I did a little bit of fashion reporting for the book, but I haven't read any fashion reporting from this perspective on political fashion reporting. And it's so catty. Yes, the assumption in the piece seems to be that fashion is the province of Democrats. Even Bernie Sanders' mittens uh, you know, we're, we're voguish and Republicans are just gauche. And that was really the premise from which she approached this thing and then superimposed a whole lot of melodrama atop what is just a, a leather jacket. I don't get it. It was really bizarre and it reflective of more of the pathologies of the reporter. And as you said, that we're seeing a lot of that. I saw one reporter. Said, so initially, it was this attack on Ron DeSantis for being unpersonable and introverted and unaccessible. And now he's out there interacting with voters on the trail on a daily basis in a fairly banal way. And it's being spung out by reporters who are watching him by, uh, about his interactions are not are reflective of an inner life that is much more fraught then we're being led to believe. So like he was on the trail and then there was this one reporter who I forget his name, but uh, so Ron DeSantis was asked to sign this World War II veterans book. Oh yeah. And he had to, and he was, and he'd said, okay, I'll, I will and did. And then he was, somebody wanted him to engage with him and then the, with the World War II veteran. And he said, I already, DeSantis said, I already did. And this was made out to be some sort of a yeah. giant controversy. Like we've yeah. seen similar uh, episodes from reporters who confront Ron DeSantis, for example, one reporter, uh, AP reporter, Steve Peoples, uh, asked Ron DeSantis why he wasn't engaging with voters, at which point Ron DeSantis broke off the engagement he was currently engaged in with a voter to answer the reporter's questions about not talking to voters. It's bizarre, and it's, it's as though we see society sort of moving on from the Trump era to the DeSantis era by doing the exact same thing we were doing right. in, the, in the Trump era, but <laughs> changing the cast of characters. So you have bands out there saying, oh, he's a fascist. We, we're going to go after this fascist. We're not going to let this fascist take over this country. And California now is trying to uh, pursue some sort of an indictment against him, like we're going to put him in jail. It's all the same talk we've been having for five years, just changing the characters out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Abigail, do you care about Casey DeSantis's motorcycle jacket? No, not at all. And I think Noah hit the nail on the head when he said that we're just switching out characters. I think we're beginning to see that DeSantis derangement syndrome is as bad, if not worse than Trump derangement syndrome. And I think the media is scared because DeSantis is actually very competent and people are flocking to Florida. The reality is whatever uh, Melania's jacket said or whatever Casey's jacket said, this is all totally irrelevant. And no one cares about this when they're going to the ballot box. The idea that this is somehow a newsworthy item is just absurd. 
All right, so Jim Garrity, let's go exit questions with an emphasis on the plural to you. Would you rather be Tim Scott or Mike Pence? Tim Scott. Would you rather be Mike Pence or Vivek Ramaswamy? Pence. Do I have to be any mm. of these people? Can, can I be happy <laughs> you rather who I am? Be, <laughs> would you rather be Vivek or Chris Christie? Politically or physiologically? <laughs> <laughs> not, not in terms of, of net wealth or uh, age or in terms any of other political positioning politically. Stuff? Uh, yes. Christy, I guess. Mm. And the big one, would you rather be Donald Trump or Joe Biden? <sighs> Can I jump off a bridge? <laughs> All right. Noah, Tim Scott or Mike Pence? With the caveat that all of this says very little about the candidate or the Republican voters who are choosing them, uh, I would definitely rather be uh, Tim Scott in that particular matchup. Pence or Ramaswamy? Oh, it was Vivek or Christie, right? Uh, that, well, that's another one. Mike oh, Pence no. or Vivek. Oh, okay. The, Vivek. And it's Vivek, by the way, to you, Vivek? Noah. Vivek. You're kidding. Okay. I'm terrible at pronunciation. So definitely that's Vivek, right. but again not saying very much about either the candidate or the voters. Vivek or Christie, are you Vivek guy again? Yeah, I'm a Vivek guy. Whoa. Now I'm going to stumble across his name every time I say it, Vivek. (laughs) Trump or Biden? Biden. All right. Abigail, would you rather be Tim Scott or Mike Pence? I think Pence. Mm, Okay. Would you rather be Mike Pence or Vivek Ramaswamy? No Vivectory for me, so Pence again. (laughs) All right. So does that mean you'd rather be Christie than Vivek? Yes. All right. Wow. It's very, very uh, you, you and Noah got to, uh, uh, you got different takes on Vivek here. Would you rather be <laughs> Donald Trump or Joe Biden? Am I allowed to pass on this one? <laughs> well, you've got two passes. I'll, I'll, I'll let you pass. So <laughs> I, w- I would rather be Tim Scott than Mike Pence. Uh, pains me to say, I mean, the Pence Vivek thing is like, it's, it's really close. Uh, I, I'm going to say uh, Pence just because. Uh, he, he's got a chance in, in Iowa to get get some some footing, but it's obviously it's unfair what's what's happened to him. He, you know, he's been paid this put a terrible political price just for doing the right thing on January six. I'd rather be Vivek than Christie. And this Trump Biden question, I think, is also really close. I, I I used to say Biden without much hesitation because Biden is the incumbent president of the United States and Donald Trump isn't even the nominee of his party yet. But I think Biden's physical, mental state makes this this a really close question. I'll just barely tick over to Joe Biden. With that, let's hear from our first sponsor of this episode, Ball and Branch Sheets. It's getting hotter, everyone, which means more outdoor activities, all of which are easier to enjoy if you have a good Night, sleep, wake up feeling rested and refreshed with the softest, most luxurious sheets from Ball & Branch. Ball & Branch is the betting expert making the highest quality sheets with incredible craftsmanship. Each sheet is slow made for an unmatched softness with 100% traceable organic cotton that gets softer with every wash. My wife is the expert on betting in the Lowry household, and these sheets get her emphatic endorsement. The signature hem sheets from Ball & Branch are a bestseller for a reason. Ball & Branch uses the highest quality, 100% organic cotton threads on earth. Each sheet set is slow made for superior softness and a better night's sleep. They feel buttery to the touch 
and they're super breathable. So they're perfect for both cooler and now, of course, warmer weather. They're loved by millions of sleepers, so luxurious, in fact, they're loved by four U.S. presidents and have more than 10,000 raving reviews. So sleep better at night with ball and branch sheets. Get 15% off your first order when you use the promo code EDITORS15 at ballandbranch.com. That's ballandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. Promo code EDITORS15, EDITORS15. Exclusions apply. See site for details. And please check it out. So, Abigail, a subplot in the Republican race has been this controversy over the word woke, as you might, even you might have noticed as you're uh, bearing down on your studies, getting ready to graduate. Ron DeSantis uses the word woke a lot. <laughs> there, there was some clip, I don't know, it was using it like a dozen times in 23 seconds or something uh, the other day. And Donald Trump has taken this approach. It's his usual approach where it's not he doesn't rifle shot his criticisms uh, uh, of anyone. It's the kitchen sink shotgun approach. So he's taken Andrew Cuomo's side now in the COVID response, saying it's better than Florida. And now, at least temporarily over the last week, he's a critic of the word woke. Trump said he's sick of hearing this. It's just woke, woke, woke from some people. Half the people don't know how to even define the term. And this picks up on a theme that we've heard the last several months by um, progressive academics and commentators saying Republicans just use this word as a catch-all insult without even being able to define it. Sure. So one of the reasons why woke is hard to define is because the woke belief system is constantly evolving to accommodate the phobia du jour. Proponents of wokeness don't know what they have to believe tomorrow or what they were supposed to believe yesterday. I think a value-neutral definition of wokeness would be something like this. An awareness, belief, or attitude that systems and processes which were supposedly meritocratic led to outcomes that underrepresented minorities, and such systems should be replaced or enhanced with an attention to identity traits for more representative outcomes. And so that's, I think, a value-neutral definition appropriate for a dictionary that I think both liberals and conservatives could agree upon. However, the word woke is rarely, if ever, used in a value-neutral way. The word woke is basically a lexical chameleon that adapts its moral hues to appeal ideologues on opposite sides of the political spectrum. So for liberals, the word woke captures a higher plane of enlightened social understanding of marginalization, injustice, and oppression. By contrast, conservatives often employ the word as a pejorative to derogatorily describe an extremist liberalism. Wokeness organizes society into a binary of oppressor and oppressed, and intersectionality creates hierarchies within the oppressed, and all the oppressed are united in their plight. Woke activists are both victims and victimizers who claim an umbrella of immunity due to some supposedly oppressed personal trait, and then they impose the demands with the weight of moral righteousness. So even though some conservatives can't define woke, we do know what it means. And of course, everyone knows what woke means. We can point Mm -hmm. to examples like schools telling young girls that they can cut off their healthy breasts and Utah preferencing racial minorities for COVID drugs, even though white people were dying at a higher rate. So even though we might not be able to readily define it, we all know what it means. 
So, so your your definition was quite impressive and buttoned up there. Basically, accords with with what Wilford Riley, our, our columnist, has has written this about this as well. As well, so let's take a concrete example. Something that a lot of us describe as woke. You know, I, I've described it as woke and seems appropriate, but I'm not sure it actually meets your definition. So, Bud Light doing this promotion with Dylan Mulvaney, this this can of beer with his face on it is is that is that woke? Sure, I think so. I think it's this obsession with identity and victimization and they're sort of citing historical instances as reasons why you wouldn't have seen a trans woman on a can of a beer. So I think this obsession with identity traits and I think gender mm-hmm. and race in particular sort of contribute to this hyper-liberalism that we call wokeness. I think another synonym for wokeness could be something like social justice activism. And of mm-hmm. course, putting Dylan Mulvaney on a beer can is social justice activism. There's nothing else it could be. And and then um, let me stick with you again for a second. So this is different than political correctness, right? So political correctness before your time, but you know, in the 90s, it was a, a hot, hot term. And it, it really denoted a a kind of hypersensitivity to potential offensive comments or conduct. And the woke is something that cuts much deeper, is a much more fundamental critique of American society. Sure. I think the people who are woke will say that the threats are far more serious. They will say that you're actually invalidating someone's existence or you're committing a trans genocide Mm -hmm. or something like that. If you say anything even remotely critical of the LGBTQ XYZ community. (laughs) And so I think they've really sort of exaggerated what the consequences are of speech. And so political correctness was like, look, this isn't correct or appropriate in this context, but wokeness is sort of, you're creating these extreme consequences, even resulting in death. Mm -hmm. So they've really elevated what the threats are. So Noah, do you agree with Abigail's definition of wokeness? Yeah, absolutely. It was fantastic as a value neutral proposition. As a slightly less value-neutral proposition, I think you can probably define it as a conceptual framework a la Marxism, as, as she said, that supplants class with identitarian affinities, and a theoretical uh, application of social justice. Uh, so it seeks to redistribute economic and social goods from identity groups perceived to have been uh, you know, not benefited from historical conditions and given to those that they are perceived as marginalized. So if uh, you know, white males traditionally had the Bud Light can, we have to hand it over to uh, trans females just to even out the historical scales, right? And it doesn't, and as you said, you know, there, there is this campaign abroad to render this term a little bit jejun, and it's having the uh, the expected effect, which we should expect as, because the forces in control of the commanding heights of the culture have engaged in this project since the spring. Um, you had, for example, the USA Today, conducting this poll, which found that a majority of people really actually like wokeness when it's defined as being, quote, informed, educated on, and aware of social injustices. And yet the same poll found that a plurality of respondents regard the term woke as an epithet, as a pejorative. Donald Trump himself is very sensitive to media narratives. He always has been. He likes the press. He seeks their attention. He rarely rejects their premises, even as he does combat with them on their particulars. So, of course, he would adopt this project in order to stay on the good side of the people whose coverage so, he— So you, he think that, you think that was what was driving it more than just like, I'm going to use whatever, whatever is at hand against 
DeSantis? I mean, it's hard to say the degree to which one uh, inspires the other. I think there's definitely mm-hmm. an element of whatever weapon is at hand there, sure. But he's also in, innately in tuned. He has an animal instinct to ratify media narratives, to seek positive attention from the press. And this is one very easy way to get it. The historical weight of the the project in which the woke are engaged um, is is one that is almost religious in its sentimentality. And, mm-hmm. and it's certainly something that he would feel because he has an energy for the room. He can kind of sense that sort of thing. And given the scope of its remit from social goods to economic goods, it, the, the philosophy observes very few limiting principles. It is an obnoxious game that is played by people who, who are uh, close to this phenomenon, across from this phenomenon, or even supportive of it. Uh, who pretend as though they can't define their own philosophy mm-hmm. and laugh and mock you if you engage in that project. Um, other writers have noticed this and made the point that, well, if this is your philosophy, go ahead and define it. In the mm-hmm. absence of a definition, your opponents will define it for you. And that's not that's not unfair. That's not dirty pool. It's just that you're seeding the field. And that's part of the reason why it has become an epithet, because they're in a, in a strange way, insecure about mm-hmm. their political philosophy, such that they don't really want to attach a, a universal definition to it. Yeah, it's, it's 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 related to the debate over critical race theory, where it's like, on the one hand, they're like, oh, critical race theory, you just made that up. It's, there's no such thing. It's, it's not being taught anywhere. But at the same time, critical race theory is essential you know, to, to, to teaching the truth about right. the history yeah, exactly. uh, of African-American. If you disagree with it, you just don't understand it. Yeah. So, Jim, th- this is just uh, it, it's it's a cl- classic case, like like the Cuomo attack, where it just I think sets up DeSantis perfect perfectly for the the counterpunch, which is, hey, you know, you're 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 aping this line from the left. I'm I'm a warrior on this stuff. There's going to be a, a major, I think, advertising effort by the DeSantis uh, campaign to market him even more as the culture warrior in the race. And for Trump, I just I just think he can't help himself. He'll just say anything anti-DeSantis, but he should stick with DeSantis is allegedly weird, you know, or, or awkward. DeSantis is a tool of the establishment. DeSantis had a relatively easy job in Florida. And I've been I've been tested. I've been in the arena. And, you know, no, I'm the one who's truly never going to back down. But but he that that's too focused for for Trump to pull off. Trump can't help himself is always the safer bet, Rich. And, and yes, you are correct there. Uh, I just want to note that I really can't improve upon Abigail's definition of woke. I can only try to be more succinct, which would be to say that, you know, that woke is denouncing Ron DeSantis and the government of Florida for being genocidally oppressive to minorities <laughs> on TikTok. Um, <laughs> The so yeah look I I I don't think there's a great deal of I mean maybe you know if you go deep enough in Trump there's some sort of more complicated and murky combination of psychological motivations but in the end Donald Trump loves anybody who says nice things about him hates anybody who says not nice things about him and lashes out at anybody who's an obstacle to getting what he wants. Therefore, Ron DeSantis, you know, is the epitome of all evil and everything he does, every single thing he does must be wrong in every single way. And a good kind of parallel phenomenon to this is how Trump's first instinct was to defend Disney and that DeSantis was this maniac for going after Disney and it's going to, they're going to pull out all of their jobs and oh my goodness, what, you know, it was only after somebody explained, well, actually, you know, 
Mr. President. Uh, lots of people don't like – lots of conservatives are really angry at Disney right now. They see it as woke propaganda. They see it as trying to alter the values of their kids. They're trying to you know, inject all kinds of radical ideologies into programming that is designed for young people. Uh, only then did Trump uh, begin denouncing Disney as becoming too woke. And even then, somehow it was Ron DeSantis' fault for somehow not stopping Disney earlier. Um, I think it, it's very much this, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So anybody who's being critical, uh, you know, just the other day, the Trump campaign issued a, a press release approvingly citing Bill Crystal. I missed that, really? Yes, uh, the you know, current. Because <laughs> right, Bill, you know, Bill was denouncing DeSantis? He was the uh, alpha. I think he said something like, you know, yeah. Trump was like the strong man oh, yeah. in the campaign. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like just simply stating the fact that he's, yeah. you know, the current front runner and in the best position or something like that. And Trump apparently saw that, seems to interpret it as genuine praise, and sent that out to the world on Truth Social. Um, anybody who says anything critical of Ron DeSantis right now, let's observe. Like, if, if you are Ron DeSantis, you are taking fire from all directions right now. Because the Democrats hate you and probably think you're tougher to beat than, Ron, mm-hmm. than Donald Trump is going to be. Uh, Donald Trump obviously, you know, hates DeSantis with the, you know, passion of a thousand suns going supernova and will, you know, criticize him for anything and everything. And every other Republican in the field, you know, whether they might, you know, feel a little bit better towards DeSantis, DeSantis is an obstacle. Yep. They want to be where he is and, you know, dislodge him as the main alternative to Trump. So th- there are very few friends for Ron DeSantis right now. And he's taken it from all direction. And Trump is going to just approvingly cite any criticism of Ron DeSantis from anybody because I think he just mentally can't make those distinctions yeah. anymore if he ever did. So, Noah, next question to you back on the topic of woke. The term woke is here to stay or will phase out, fade out relatively quickly? The term will fade out relatively quickly, and I'll be gra- glad for it because I don't think it really is an effective descriptor of what we're seeing here. I think, as Abigail said, and as I've written before, uh, programmatic social justice is far more descriptive, uh, better, and actually gives you something to latch onto when you want to oppose it. Abigail, here to stay or going to fade out? I think it'll fade out. I think people will kind of get sick of hearing it. Liberals don't take the term that seriously. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really provide an advantage for conservatives to use it. I think there are better sort of pseudo synonyms to use. So we could say social justice activism, or I think Noah just said programmatic social justice. So I think it will fall out of favor. But of course, the woke activism itself won't go away. Jim? Political correctness as a term went away, so I figure woke um, will uh, eventually fade away. But there will be some replacement term, awakened or uh, you know, sufficiently caffeinated is my (laughs) term for being awake. uh, Revive the wide awakes. (laughs) Yeah, with the uh, with their marches, with torches and and all that torchlit marches, pageantry. It's always had a vaguely revolutionary sentiment, Mm -hmm. and it's. It's been with our history since we've had it. Yeah, so I'm going to be uh, more more bullish on the future of the term. I think it'll be with us several years uh, longer, at least, before people do genuinely get sick of it, and there, there's something, some better alternative. But the alternative can't be too clinical, and that, that's where Noah and Abigail, I'm not sure your your terms would would uh, uh, get pick up because there's something about woke that just. Um, it has a little sting to it, uh, and it's uh, well. The uh, problem here yeah. is, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you, Rich. Sure. But the problem here is these phrases always get appropriated by the opponents, and the opponents poison them. Mm-hmm. So it was social justice warriors, 
And then mm-hmm. it, and they and that was something that was applied by people who were social justice warriors. Mm-hmm. And it was appropriated, and then it was to- toxified and dropped. Woke. Yeah. So that that one was phenomenon. just a that was just a couple of years, right? So social yes, justice the warriors. The problem yeah. is the dog food. The problem mm-hmm. isn't the brand. Yeah. Okay. With that, let's pause and hear from our second sponsor. This episode, Made in Cookware. We have Made in Frying Pans here in our kitchen, and they are totally awesome. Made in was created by a 100-year-old family business specializing in high-end restaurant supply. It works with celebrated chefs and expert artisans to craft elegant, professional-quality cookware for restaurant and home kitchens alike. Your best meals are ahead of you. With artisan-made, restaurant-quality cookware, Made in's award-winning non-stick, that's very important, Non-stick cookware has a double layer of professional-grade non-stick coating. Its stainless clad is nearly indestructible, and it has unparalleled heat retention, making for even heat distribution. We found all this to be true. Our made-in pans are great to handle, cook evenly, and very importantly, they are easy to clean. And I say this as the guy who spends an hour at the sink almost every night cleaning dishes so made in cookware gets our highest recommendation and right now editors listeners can get 10 percent off full priced items on orders of a hundred dollars or more from made in for full details visit madeincookware.com slash editors that's madeincookware.com slash editors please check it out i guarantee you you will not regret it so speaking of regrets another professional quality Segue there from your your uh, humble host, Jim. Did you? I hope you picked up on that. Uh, Chris Licht gives access to our old friend Tim Alberta. I, I think maybe it was for a, a on and off for a year, <laughs> and I, he's he's watching. Um, with Don Lemon and making critical comments about a guy who's supposed to be, you know, pillar of his morning show, like in, in an on the record setting, he he invites Alberta to to watch him work out at the gym. If there's if there's one. St- clear, unmistakable sign of egomania is, is when you invite a journalist to watch you work out. And the whole thing is how Licht is transforming CNN. Jeff Zucker messed everything up. Jeff Zucker has a vendetta against him and is trying to sabotage him, which apparently is is actually true. But this, this uh, profile in the wake of the Trump town hall, which, you know, you can, you can make a case for having a, a Trump town hall. It's just the way they, they did it, putting Caitlin Collins up against him with a, with a, a hugely sympathetic <laughs> Trump crowd in the audience didn't work out so well uh, for his purposes. But now you have talent saying we've lost faith in Licht and rumors that he's going to be out. And this, this whole project of trying to transform CNN is uh, it's been a little bumpy. Uh, I just want to point out the that is the smoothest transition, Rich, that I've seen since the NBA Finals. Um, wow. Oh, wow. So the Chris Licht, you know, perhaps his surname is appropriate. It certainly looks like he's running into a lot of problems. The lesson is, as good a reporter as Tim Alberta is, keep him at arm's length. Um, if Alberta had any greater access, he'd be telling you about Licht's colonoscopy. Um Mm-hmm. This was a, you know, look. It's like Be- Beto. What did Beto Facebook his dental cleaner? Yes, or? yes. Like, you yeah. know, that, that, you know you're, you're never going, you know, believe it or not, I do work out and know you're never going to get a chance to see that or have coverage. Of that. <laughs> um, I feel bad for Chris Licht because I think he entered the job with a lot of the right uh, goals in mind. Uh, I think his critique of CNN during the Trump years and the hashtag resistance years aligns with a great deal of people, uh, both on the right and in the political center. Uh, CNN was becoming 
effectively indistinguishable from MSNBC. And that had, you know, CNN had always had uh, success in what you'd call, fire, you know, what they used to call fire alarm television. Something blows up in Beirut and it's big, you want to watch CNN. Uh, Russia invades, you want to CNN. You know, war in, 9-11, war in Afghanistan, war in Iraq. Big, foreign, scary, war-focused events, people tune into CNN. But on a day-to-day basis and on a, you know, particularly in prime time, people like, you know, conservatives generally, up until very recently, uh, liked Fox News and folks on the left liked MSNBC. And for, there was not enough people in the middle who wanted to watch Anderson Cooper or whoever, any of the many other people they've had in prime time, including the illustrious John Elliott Spitzer. Um, CNN has really struggled for a while trying to figure out what their identity is when it's not fire alarm television. Uh, Anthony Bourdain, right? You know, this, this constant, so Chris mm-hmm. Licht had this idea, we're going to get back to news. We're going to get back to less talking heads, less debating. And we're sure as heck going to do our best to get Republicans to say, Hey, this is a news network you can trust. We're going to have your guys on too. We are not seeing it our mission to try to destroy Trump and Republicans. And I, you know, you and I were talking to Megyn Kelly. I feel like it's almost like an organ transplant and the body is rejecting mm-hmm. the, the, the mm-hmm. new organ. It does not want, there are a lot of people got very comfortable with CNN being a hashtag resistance left-wing network. Um, I think, you know, Licht has made some good moves in terms of trying to get rid of Don Lemon and some of the most egregious uh, Brian Stelter. You've seen some changes since the uh, uh, the previous regime, but it's, it's a st- steep uphill climb, and I think he's just got too many people, and he looks, he now comes across as a little full of himself and not quite in touch with um, all the different employees and the mood around him. So, Abigail, there's no doubt that in in the, the the broad scheme of things, cable TV is in decline. It's CNN now is getting six hundred thousand people, I think, in in prime time. Fox, after the departure of Tucker Carlson, has been about down a million in prime time. I think it's maybe ticked up a, l- a little bit just from from eyeballing reports on. The ratings, but th- these people have disappeared. And it's not clear where they've gone. Like some of them have gone over to to Newsmax, but it's not as though Newsmax is you know has um, a million and a half people in in prime time. It, so it looks like they just kind of d- disappeared and, and faded out to either not consuming news or consuming news from other sources. So this is how old I am. I can ask people your age, Abigail. Do t- they pay attention to cable TV? Does it does it matter to them at all? Or are they they getting everything from other places? No, I don't even have a TV, so I have no idea what go. CNN's been airing <laughs> for a bit. So I think we're seeing this trend, not only among young people, but among pretty much everyone. People are receiving their news through different mediums. They're following specific writers on Twitter. They're signing up for email list subscriptions. They're signing up for individual writers on Substack. They're receiving their news from podcasts like our editor's podcast. And so it's not clear to me that CNN is being uniquely hurt or Fox News is being particularly hurt. It just seems that there's this huge shift in the West in how we are receiving our news. And that's not necessarily the fault of CNN or Fox. So, Noah, CNN, you know, as Jim was alluding to, it used to be a huge deal. And, you know, it was a huge deal during the first Gulf War, because it was, you know, it was really the only 24-hour operation around and could be on, on the ground and on the ground constantly and had this brand as a place you go for news. And that, uh, you know, eroded over time. It, it completely went away during the, the Trump years. 
But that wasn't really unique to, to CNN, or, or maybe CNN was an extreme reflection of what was going on in the broader me- media, which is the rise of Trump kind of gave reporters and journalists a sense of permission that they really could let it all hang out, you know, that their their political views were, were righteous, objective, and correct. And now you have Lick sort of trying to pull CNN back, and there's just not, not clear what the, the substitute is for, for that, that uh, a more partisan model that they've all, all gotten used to. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, and interestingly enough, the first Gold, Gulf War coverage was rather scandalous for CNN because um, they uh, agreed to terms with Saddam Hussein's regime to get access and coverage that uh, other networks would not. Um, that was their sort of pirate ship model. And I, because of the decline of cable news, I feel like a lot of the a lot of what we're seeing internally from CNN is just this effort to preserve this kind of unrepresentative fishbowl atmosphere that they languish in. Sure, there's this there was a licked subordinate who tried to revamp the digital business to get into the Chinese market. It's questionable. The morning show shakeup, questionable. But Chris Lick's location of his office on the 22nd floor as opposed to in the newsroom. The CNN town hall with Donald Trump, where they dared expose their viewers to the front runner in the Republican race, this is this is all just melodrama in the heads of people who are not representative of voters. To break down the ratings from the second week of May, as you said, Fox News, 144 million average viewers, which is down about a million, million and a half from where they were two months ago. MSNBC, a million. Newsmax, 357,000. CNN, 335,000 in prime time. What are we talking about here? Comic books get more exposure. General media generally gets more exposure. The disaggregation of uh, viewership and where people consume their news is rendering cable news an antiquated product, Mm -hmm. generally, across the board. Yeah, you'd rather be you'd rather be a popular Daily Wire host than than many hosts on Fox at the moment, right? Yeah, absolutely. And just because advertising models are a license to print money has kept these stations relevant. The subscription costs that you get for care from carriers keeps these networks afloat. Otherwise, the viewership does not justify in any way the level of attention that they receive, particularly from the political class. And if CNN's troubles somehow, and I don't think they will, will somehow manage to break through this reality distortion field that we all languish in. And when we assign much more power and relevance to these channels than they objectively deserve, that would be good for the political class. So Jim Garrity, X question to you. Let's put a number on it. How much does cable news still matter from zero to 10? Zero doesn't matter at all. 10, it's still supremely important. Um, would you count debate coverage in there? Yeah. Okay. With debates, it's a seven, but sinking. Um, seven. Wow. Okay. That, that look in part because when you have a memorable exchange on a uh, debate or a late night show or, or you know like Tucker's old show or something like that, then it would go viral. Then people would you know you, you'd see clips of it on YouTube. You'd see. Uh, Ramaswamy going out for Don Lemon, right? I mean, something big happens. People do, uh, Don Lemon saying that Nikki Haley is, uh, uh, Pastor Prime, right? I mean, like things happen on mm-hmm. cable news that still, uh, have a significant impact and get talked about 
in the general news cycle, just less than it used to. Part of that is a rise in competition, and also I think that part of it is that um, I think it kind of has become stale and predictable in a lot of ways. I, I can't imagine mm-hmm. there are any shows, like I, for obvious, I, I think about politics all day. The last thing I want to do is think about it at night. But by and large, you already know what you're getting when most of these shows, and you're, ne- you're almost never surprised. Yeah. <laughs> you know. yeah, but I have to say, Jim, just just what, what you were saying there crystallized for me. The extraordinary achievement of Tucker Carlson. I mean, we, we had our, our differences with him uh, politically and, and in terms of uh, uh, the integrity of, of some of the stuff he put out there, obviously. But to, to, to have a show that mattered so much on what's kind of clear, especially after his departure, is a declining form of media it was really extraordinary. Noah, zero to 10. Um, I'm going to go with in the near term in the next three four years i'm going to go with four mm. because in part and i'm going to say that in even those debate formats live news formats events you can catch a lot of that stuff after the fact in clips on uh media that aggregates this sort of stuff that has far a far larger user base um chris uh licked apparently was talking about simulcasting a CNN hosted debate across the platforms that they own. So it would be like, you could catch it on TBS or the discovery networks. And now I feel like that would really be the nail in the coffin because you're going to reach a much broader audience. And once you realize you're reaching a much broader audience than cable news, you'll re- the, the paradigm would shift towards seeking broader audiences. It does, it does the political class no favors to silo itself in these very unrepresentative media spaces. So, Abigail, we have two very different numbers on the board. We have a four and a seven. It's up to you whether you go safely in the middle and average them out or tip the balance one way or the other. Where are you, Abigail? I'm Anthony. tipping the balance. Whoa. Which a three way? Or a four. Whoa. A three or a four. <laughs> it seems to me that, yes, there are important moments and snippets that happen on cable news, but you don't see them talked about later on other cable news shows. You see them talked about on social media. Mm-hmm. You see the, tri- the clips go viral on Twitter, or you watch Mm -hmm. that segment on YouTube, you aren't going back to cable news to hear more commentary about it. And so it's being funneled into these other channels. We don't really see cable news itself being the place we go for these clips. Yeah, I think you make a very good point. I'm still, I'm going Jim's way. So we're going to, it's going to get averaged out to a five or whatever, because I'm going to go about a six. I think maybe slightly less important than than Jim's Jim's putting at it at seven, but it still it still matters. It's just that that number is incrementally uh, uh, ticking down um, just a tiny little bit every single uh, day, week, month. So with that, let's hit a few other things before we go. So Abigail, as mentioned previously, you graduated. Yes, almost exactly a week ago to the minute. How's it feel? Now I don't know what to do with myself. (laughs) I mean, I just have all this free time. And somehow I am now waking up earlier than I was during the school year. Uh, So I wish I had this energy while I was a student. (laughs) So it's just write write more for NR. That's what what you need to do. Exactly. So what, what what did you study? I was a politics major, and then I did certificates in linguistics and creative writing. And did you, are, are there any cl- classes that were uh, a transformative is a, a strong word, but uh, what, what were the classes that had the, the, the most influence on, on you and your way of looking at the world? 
A handful of my Princeton professors have written for National Review, so I'm sure you all know them or edited for them. So I had Constitutional Interpretation and Civil Liberties with Robert P. George. I had a few courses on Lincoln and the Civil War with Alan Gelzo. Oh, yeah, fantastic. Uh, It was just amazing. Alan Gelzo in particular, he's sort of an orator. He can just quote spontaneously, and he does all these voices and acting. He's got the voice, yeah. yeah, it was as if I was attending a play. It was wonderful. <laughs> I <learned> so much. <laughs> so, Jim Garrity, the flag football championships did not turn out the way you hoped. No, they did not. But unlike, unlike the Jets, they actually made yeah. it to the championship. Uh, one way or another, <laughs> the season was going to end on Sunday. And the schedule that we were looking at as the day unfolded was, Coach wanted my younger son's team there for practice at 12. Last regular season game was at 1. They would have a certain amount of time off at 2 o'clock, but the first playoff game that they'd already qualified for, the only thing that was left to be determined was the seeding, was at 3. Four teams made the playoffs. If they won that game, they would you know, it would end around 4. They'd have another hour off, begin the next game at 5, and that would wrap up around 6. So we were looking at a potential of 6 hours of on-and-off flag football. And as I've mentioned... My younger son was one of these smaller, shorter, skinnier kids on his team. That you know, you know, the age range was about 13 to 15. Um, I'm fairly certain some of his teammates will be getting full scholarships and uh, and or in next year's draft. I mean, they're they're almost as tall as me, and uh, so you know, when they go up high, it's not really not really too hard to tell who's going to come up with that one. Uh, so, la- so do you do you break out do you break out the lawn chairs and just kind of. Oh, I, 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 oh, I don't sit. I pace up and down that sideline. I, I, oh, no, okay. Seriously, right. and, you know, um, by and large, I am an appropriate dad. My younger son, I believed, had a sack. The way you sack it, it's, it's flag football. You just reach, you grab. In fact, they don't even want to. Yeah, so, so why would there be controversy? Wouldn't you know that? Oh, it was a question whether they got the ball. Quarterback has completed the throw by the time, allegedly ah, by the time my oh, younger son on. had this one. Ah. Uh, I may have registered my objection to the ref's call <laughs> in a loud enough volume to be heard on the three other adjacent fields playing games at that time. Uh, I managed to not get ejected. Uh, the ref was good natured about seeing an over exuberant dad. Unfortunately, uh, not only did they lose the last game of the season, they lost every one of their games has been within one score. They, the hard fought. And it's been really good for my son to learn how to contribute to a team when you're not the most talented player. How to mm-hmm. you know, how to find something you can do to help the team succeed, even when you don't feel like you know you're you're the star or you're going to be the centerpiece of it. Uh, alas, they did not win either of, of Sunday's games, and then because so much of these kids seem so much older. We saw the game ended, and we saw the other team drive home themselves. <laughs> so, Noah, the end of the school year is upon us. It's a bittersweet time every year. Um, yeah, it's nice to have my two boys around every day and, you know, pitter-pattering around, usually having fun, sometimes screaming at each other over something incomprehensibly petty. Um, but the bittersweet part is a lot less opportunity to concentrate on doing work, going running an errand if you have to. Um, it's it's a big life shift. It happens every year. You think you'd be used to it by now, nine years into this thing, um, but not really. So we got several swallows of some type that have been gliding around the house, and we've nicknamed them Coke, Pepsi, and Dr. Pepper. That's it. That's all I got. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity! What's your pick? 
Well, there's an absolute ton of strong competition this uh, for for this, this week's selection. Um, but I will go with you. It kind of alludes to our conversation of earlier in the podcast, Rich. Trump is wrong about woke. Uh, on the one hand, this is kind of self-evident. But on the other hand, when the former president, who is inspires such loyalty amongst so many uh, people who self-identify as conservatives, say, oh, you know, woke is too, used too much. It doesn't mean anything anymore. No, no, that's not the case. You lay it out very well. And uh, glad to see this. And this is also your syndicated column. So in addition to finding it in National Review, people can and should find it in their local newspaper, which for the benefit of Abigail are these paper things they used to deliver to your house. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say that column would have been uh, better informed and more precise if I talked to Abigail uh, before before uh, drafting it. Noah Rothman, what's your pick? It's a rich fest today. I'm going to go with DeSantis Exposed which is a perfect parody of what we were talking about early, earlier in the podcast about how reporters uh, inflate these trifling trivialities into evidence of characterological defects on the part of the candidate. And it's just, uh, it's really unbecoming uh, from reporters and you did a good job exposing Well, that. thank you. I'm embarrassed. So Abigail, you do not have to pick one of my pieces, but it's okay if you do, but what's your pick? <laughs> Sorry to disappoint, but I'm going to go with Harvey Mansfield's letter to oh, the Oh, just, just, just Harvey Mansfield. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it was originally published in the Harvard Crimson and then reprinted in National Review. And I really like the point he made about things being lost when you go woke. I think so many undergraduate students choose to profess woke ideas because they think it will help them professionally and they think it will provide them social advantages. But I liked how Harvey really emphasized that, no, you're actually losing many things when you choose to do this. So I thought it was a great article. And I selfishly told myself that he was thinking of me when he wrote it because <laughs> I just graduated in the class of 2023. So, yeah, it was it was a nice and timely piece. Awesome. So my pick is this Megan. Kelly uh, piece about how she's done with pronouns. We took it from her monologue on Friday's show. As Jim mentioned, Jim and I were on as part of National Review Day, which Megan has once a month. And sometimes spoken um, you know, speeches or, or monologues, they just don't translate well in, into print. So I was kind of, uh, this was my idea to do this because I'm such a discerning uh, editor-in-chief with such uh, such creative ideas all the time. Um, but I, I just wondered when, when I was actually see it in print, how it, how it would do. And it was, it was fantastic. It's excellent. So Megan, if you ever want to come over to the, the dark side and, and transfer over to a, to a print person, we are here for you. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast, any rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National View Magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes it sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Abigail. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Noah. Thanks to Ball and Branch and Maiden. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.